Welcome to the E6S Methods Podcast with Jacob and Aaron, your weekly dose of tips and tricks to achieve excellent performance in your business and career. Join us as we explore deeper into the practical worlds of Lean, Six Sigma, project management, and design thinking. In this episode number 195, Kaizen and the Art of Everything, Part 1, I read passages from Robert Persig's iconic book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and elaborate on how his message applies in business and Lean Six Sigma. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find all our back episodes on our podcast table of contents at esuccess-methods.com. If you like this episode, be sure to click the like link in the show notes. It's easy. Just tap our logo, click, and you're done. Tap, click, done. Here we go. We have hit a point in our podcast where I'd like to open up the box. I mean, there's obviously Lean at Six Sigma, Operational Excellence, or any kind of continuous improvement. I, I feel that our listeners can or have more content or contributions to provide us and maybe even enlighten some of the listeners on how they feel about certain topics, just not what we think about those things. So if we could get a brave soul willing to come on the podcast, would love to hear of unique ways that people have used maybe a different tool, best practice, or even better, a lesson learned from maybe a poor execution of a tool. Go to our website, www.esuccess-methods.com. Click on the button that says call for content. Let us know what you'd like to share. Hello everyone, this is Aaron. It's just me today. Today I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. I'm going to bring in a a book that has become my favorite book. I'm not a big reader, but this book had uh, really resonated with me. Uh, a few years ago, I read it and it started on, on a trip, and it took me a while to read it because I'm a slow reader and everything, but um, that is my form of a page-turner, and it is called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Now, if you have not read this, uh, I highly recommend that you do. It is a It's a philosophy book, and it really is uh, written and published in the 1970s, and it is based on true story of the experiences of a of the of the author uh, during a motorcycle trip across the country, across the desert, up in the mountains, and uh, with his son and the sort of the inner turmoils and embattlements that they have as a relationship, and as he also battles with some of his own sanity and history and it's just it's just a great read and one of the reasons you know what what's that, what's this have to do with project management or lean six sigma many of the passages that were in there there's huge huge parallels with what it takes to successfully do uh, lean six sigma and 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 frankly even to succeed in life so uh this is going to be part one and i'm calling it kaizen and the art of everything and uh, we're going to in this one is going to talk more about uh, the scientific method it's, it is a kind of a scientific approach to what he calls art and uh, in this book draws a lot of parallels between science and art and I think it's uh, fitting so basically I'm going to read a couple passages and then try to draw these parallels what comes to my mind when when I read these and uh, I hope you enjoy First one, ask the right questions. The real purpose of the scientific method is to make sure nature hasn't misled you into thinking you know something you don't actually know. There is not a mechanic or scientist or technician alive who hasn't suffered from that one so much that he's not instinctively on guard. That's the main reason why so much scientific and mechanical information sounds so dull and so cautious. If you get careless and go romanticizing scientific information, giving it a flourish here and there, Nature will soon make a complete fool out of you. It does it often enough anyway, even if you don't give it the opportunities. One must be extremely careful and rigidly logical when dealing with nature. One logical slip and an entire scientific edifice comes tumbling down. 
one false deduction about the machine, and you can get hung up indefinitely. In part one of formal scientific method, which is the statement of the problem, the main skill is in stating absolutely no more than you are positive you know. It is much better to enter a statement, solve problem, why doesn't cycle work? Which sounds dumb, but is correct. Then it is to enter a statement, solve problem. What is wrong with the electrical system? When you don't absolutely know, the trouble is in the electrical system. What you should say is, solve problem. What is wrong with cycle? And then state as a first entry of part two, hypothesis number one, the trouble is in the electrical system. You think of as many hypotheses as you can, then you design experiments to test them to see which are true and which are false. This careful approach to beginning questions keeps you from taking major wrong turn, which might cause you weeks of extra work or can even hang you up completely. Scientific questions often have a surface appearance of dumbness for this reason. They are asked in order to prevent dumb mistakes later on. So obviously this one really resonated with me, and that's because, well, first of all, as a consultant, I often will brag that uh, my success comes from a willingness to ask those dumb questions, because often I am really the least educated one in the room on the subject matter that we're going to do. I'm an expert in fact-finding and facilitating the process to get there, but I am not an expert in any of the processes that I am there to help uh, improve. So um, asking the dumb questions is the smart way to go, uh, and it, it, it uh, prevents those dumb mistakes later on, as it mentions. Also, in the defined phase, as, as well as many exploratory phases of a new project or design, this is the essence of good problem statements. You know, good problem statements are difficult to craft. And we've, Jacob and I, Jacob and I have done a couple episodes on this. Um, one of the big problems with problem statements is they often contain a bias for a root cause or even a solution. So as mentioned in this passage, what's wrong with the electrical system that, uh, you say you fix the electrical system and your bike still doesn't run. Your cycle still doesn't run. So you needed to back off on that. And instead of devoting all the energy to just the electrical system really take a step back and focus on the cycle because it is the only thing you know for sure is wrong so for more on problem statements and project definition take a look at episodes number nine and ten demaic definition uh, demaic defined project definition part one and two there are some dangers with bad problem statements obviously you waste time solving the wrong problem even worse you may never realize or admit and continue to throw good money after bad and risk getting stuck in this sunk cost fallacy, which is continue to devote resources and time to something that you that may be a dead end only because you've already spent so much resources and time that you're just not willing to give up on it. That is what's known as the sunk cost. It doesn't make it any more valuable. It just means you stuck with it because you've already already invested so much in it. A similar approach to this is used during an 8D, and the 8D is used in a lot of root cause analysis, especially in the quality circles where you you have a problem and you want to uh, fix it. You have, a, say, a quality excursion from your uh, manufacturing site or something like that. It's gotten out there. You have dissatisfied customer. The 8D is um, called the 8 disciplines. It's a framework for which you identify the problem, get a team together, uh, stop the bleeding in, in a sense, try to um, address the symptoms of the problem and then 
dig further for the root cause of the problem. So there's a tool in there that's often used called the is is not analysis. And it helps sort out what we know from what we know for sure. Um, and also identify what we don't know or what we know something absolutely is and what we know something absolutely is not. So that is the tool. We know what it is. We know what it is not. And then you have to continue to investigate to fill in the blanks. Consider inferential statistics and hypothesis testing. There's an interesting thing with statistics that I, that I teach in the classroom. And it's one of the key lessons when you learn statistics is that you are no longer absolutely positive about anything. There are no more absolutes. There's no such thing as proof anymore. There's only probabilities, uh, including the probability of being wrong. So we cannot accept what we call the null hypothesis. We can only fail to reject it. Definitely we'll do some more on this in a future episode. Too much to cover right now. But So we can reject the null hypothesis, but we still have what we call a 5% risk of being wrong. This is called the alpha risk. And if we set our alpha at 0.05, and this is something you can determine, something you decide. And so we, we just, all we do is hedge our bets and try to reduce the probability of being wrong. But there still is some risk and some probability that we are in fact wrong. Even if all the data are telling us that we are right, there is still a possibility and a risk, a probability that we are wrong. Testing hypotheses. To test properly, the mechanic removes the plug and lays it against the engine so that the base around the plug is electrically grounded, kicks the starter lever, and watches the spark plug gap for a blue spark. If there isn't any, he can conclude one of two things. A. There is an electrical failure, or B. His experiment is sloppy. If he is experienced, he will try a few more times, checking connections, trying every way he can think of to get that plug to fire. Then, if he can't get it to fire, he finally concludes that A is correct. There's an electrical failure, and the experiment is over. He has proved that his hypothesis is correct. Now, this almost goes against what I just said. <laughs> he said that he has proved. Well, I guess he we can call it proved beyond reasonable doubt. That is not tr- proof. I like to call it statistically demonstrated. I don't like to call it proof. Again, hedging my bets. In this final category, conclusion, skill comes in stating no more than that which the experiment has proved. It hasn't proved that when he fixes the electrical system, the motorcycle will start. There may be other things wrong, but he does know that the motorcycle isn't going to run until the electrical system is working, and he sets up the next formal question. Solve problem, what is wrong with the electrical system? He then sets up hypotheses for these and tests them. By asking the right questions and choosing the right tests and drawing the right conclusions, the mechanic works his way down the echelons of the motorcycle hierarchy until he has found the exact specific cause or causes of the engine failure. And then he changes them so that they no longer cause the failure. An untrained observer will only see physical labor and often get the idea that physical labor is mainly what the mechanic does. Actually, the physical labor is the smallest and easiest part of what the mechanic does. By far the greatest part of his work is careful observation and precise thinking. That is why mechanics sometimes seem so taciturn and withdrawn when performing tests. They don't like it when you talk to them because they are concentrating on the mental images, hierarchies, and not really looking at you or the physical motorcycle at all. They are using the experiment as part of a program to expand their hierarchy of knowledge of the faulty motorcycle and compare it to the correct hierarchy in their mind. They are looking at the underlying form. So this really just described root cause analysis and um, 
plan, do, study, adjust, or PDCA, the iterative cycle until you've exhausted all the options and you continue to follow the breadcrumbs. Would you find a little bit more information? You develop your next level of hypotheses and go down to test out those and continue to work until you find the underlying uh, problem. You can call this process of elimination. You can call this Shannon or Red X methods. This also runs in parallel, again, with the is-is-not tool. The novice advantage, I'm calling this one. The first time you do any major job, it seems as though the out-of-sequence reassembly setback is your biggest worry. This occurs usually at a time when you think you're almost done. After a day's work, you finally have it all together except for, what's this, a connecting rod bearing liner? How could you have left that out? Oh, Jesus, everything's got to come apart again. You can almost hear the gumption escaping. There's nothing you can do but to go back and take it all apart again after a rest period of up to a month that allows you to get used to the idea. There are two techniques I use to prevent the out-of-sequence reassembly setback. I use them mainly when I am getting into a complex assembly I don't know anything about. It should be inserted here, parenthetically, that there's a school of mathematical thought which says I shouldn't be getting into a complex assembly I don't know anything about. I should have training or leave the job to a specialist. That's a self-serving school of mechanical eliteness I'd like to see wiped out. That was a specialist who broke the fins on this machine. I've edited the manuals written to train specialists for IBM, and what they know when they're done isn't that great. You're just at a disadvantage the first time, It may cost you a little more because of the parts you accidentally damage, and it will almost undoubtedly take a lot more time, but the next time around, you're way ahead of the specialist. You, with gumption, have learned the assembly the hard way, and you have a whole set of good feelings about it that he's unlikely to have. So think about this. This is essentially failing forward, getting into something that you don't really know much about, and maybe you're a fraud for even trying it, and you have no business getting into that business. You have no business being there. This is almost the start of every black belt's project. What is this person going to do? They don't have any knowledge in this area. Okay. Or, or, or maybe even go back to your first project. You really aren't an expert in these tools, but you're going to get the practice. You're going to embark on that learning journey. You're going to get on that learning curve and fail forward. A lot of the best innovations come out this way. So we actually teach these approach in design thinking through the empathize, define, ideate, test, and prototype, and and lean startup, build, measure, learn, iterative problem cycle, and all that's based on the PDSA or PDCA. It's it's about failing forward. And think about this is how new entrants disrupt an existing market. Think about Amazon. What does Amazon know about retail grocery store? Hmm. Nothing. They're not really in that market, except that they know a lot about retail, they know a lot about logistics, they know a lot about customer satisfaction, they know a lot about technology. Guess what? They've decided to take that and apply it and buy Whole Food and say, okay, we are going to disrupt this market. True, quote unquote, we have no business being in this market. But look, everybody else who's in this market right now has decided to stand still with an old business model. And uh, it's going to take an outsider to come in and change it up. And uh, that's what you get when you have no business. You are not an expert in this. When you have no business being in the, you know, going outside of your space, going outside of your, going outside your lane. When you are a novice, you are actually at an advantage because you are not polluted by the, the way it's always been done sort of mentality. So also, also think about this. Um, we covered this in episode 180 parable of our times. And that one goes, talks about, 
uh, Circuit City and uh, a little bit on its downfall and as a result of its uh, approach to customer experience and managing their operations. And also, Don't Be This Guy, episode number 136 of Johnny B. Ermuda, The Tale of a Project Lost, which is really just the novice coming in, but not really grasping that he's the novice, more like treating himself as if he's the expert, uh, when the real experts know he's a novice. So that's an issue to deal with. That gets into the next part of the ego disadvantage. So the first first one we just talked about, the last one we just talked about was the novice advantage. This one is the ego disadvantage. So think of a novice with ego, novice with an ego. That's Johnny Biermuda in, in episode number 136. He represents a lot of black belts when they first come out of class. Um, black belts, they're brought in as elite players in a lot of deployments, and they go through quite a bit of training, a lot. And it's an eye-opening experience. It is a almost a transcendent experience for a lot of them. And they come out feeling extremely empowered, and they often don't really know the limits of their ability and uh, can come, come across a little bit strong. That first experience of, even though they're a novice, they actually feel as if they're an expert because they do know something more than somebody else in the team might know as far as the tools and techniques. However, they actually have no experience in doing it. So that's the difference. They're educated, but they're not experienced. And uh, those are some of the pains that go through if you have an ego while also a novice. You are listening to E6S Methods Podcast, brought to you by E6S Industries. Join us on our website at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. Hey, Jacob, you remember when you used to work for me? Sure. Do you happen to remember how much money you were making back then? Yeah, I do. Yeah? And yeah. how much more you're making right now? I can do the math. And uh, how about that development plan that you and I put together during that time? Definitely give me some perspective and give me some direction on what I need to focus on. I found that useful. So far, I have a 100% promotion success rate for those people who are willing to work hard and were willing to work with me to create a customized career development plan, the E6S Pro Career Program. Three different levels promotion and pathfinding level, which is career planning, customized improvement plans, resume refinement, and interview preparation. The next level down is targeted for those people who are they're just looking to prepare for their next move. And because it really does pain me to see unemployed professionals, I am offering a level called Help Quick, a free one-time resume review and revision for those who are unemployed and in the Lean Six Sigma quality engineering project management or science fields. So for anybody who wants more details and information, these can be found at www.e6s-methods.com slash pro career. And if you're serious about career advancement, contact me through the website. You'll be glad you did. I can watch for that. All right. The ego disadvantage. If you have a high evaluation of yourself, then your ability to recognize new facts is weakened. Your ego isolates you from the quality reality. When the facts show that you've just goofed, you're not as likely to admit it. When false information makes you look good, you're likely to believe it. On any mechanical repair job, ego comes in for rough treatment. You're always being fooled, you're always making mistakes, and the mechanic who has a big ego to defend is at a terrific disadvantage. If you know enough mechanics to think of them as a group, and your observations coincide with mine, I think you'll agree that mechanics tend to be rather modest and quiet. There are exceptions, but generally, if they're not quiet and modest at first, the work seems to make them that way. And skeptical, attentive but skeptical, not egoistic, 
There's no way to bullshit your way into looking good on a repair job except with someone who doesn't know what you're doing. I was going to say that the machine doesn't respond to your personality, but it does respond to your personality. It's just that the personality that it responds to is your real personality, the one that genuinely feels and reasons and acts, rather than any false, blown-up personality images your ego may conjure up. These false images are deflated so rapidly and completely, you're bound to be very discouraged very soon, if you've derived your gumption from ego rather than quality. So he's talking about when your sense of self exceeds your abilities. Uh, ego, in my opinion, ego is kind of the root of most evil. It, co- it kills all that is good, destroys relationships, causes wars, ruins businesses. It's the underlayment of most failed, well, I say all, of all failed continuous improvement deployments. See episode 38, why, why Lean Six Sigma projects fail. Deployments will implode when false successes are celebrated but turn up empty. Program detractors will put their egos, their own image, above what is best for the company and will wage war on your project or program. Or a program was only designed to make a big splash to make a new executive look good, but not really make that lasting difference that the company needed. So think about this. In this in this first one that I talk about, deployments implode with false successes. This is a key one. People think they need to celebrate the successes, but... A lot of what happens, and especially when we're, we're presenting financial information, and this happens on all metrics, not just deployments, but um, when we're trying to say, oh, look at how good we did. We, we really want to prove that there's a return on investment, and here's all the money we're saving. The problem is then those numbers become inflated, and, uh, off, and because you, you want to look good, you want to preserve your job, you want, the, you want the finance people in charge to continue to say, yeah, let's continue doing this. This is really good. The problem is when there comes a time when they try to reconcile that with the books and the actual money and they find out, well, we did a lot of activity. We said we saved money, but I can't find it anywhere. And so your program implodes. It starts to uh, eat away at itself because basically you've lied. You've lied about what you're doing for the company. You've told it what it could do if it made certain decisions and did certain things a certain way. You've told it or you've saved it little bits of money in a certain situation, but um, we decided to spend it in some other way. And we never we never really recuperate that. And that's an issue. And that's mostly caused by the ego of the deployment leaders making sure that they look good. And uh, on the opposite side, program detractors, there's there's egos on that side, too. And I guess even for the executive who decided to sponsor the entire deployment, too, a lot of times this happens when they're brand new to a company and they say, hey, you know what? I've seen this before. I want to do this here. They made a really good splash at this company. It really changed their stock price. And they expect it to all be done within three to five years so that they can move on and take their bonuses, maybe move on to a different company, maybe move up in the ranks uh, within the C-suite. But um, deployments don't actually work that way. And if you if you think you're going to change an entire billion dollar, multi billion dollar, or even yeah, multi billion dollar organization in three to five years, you're wrong. No deployment is is just big enough for that. So if you're not in it for the long haul and you're only in it for the short term big splash, you, you're going to find yourself with a, a a canceled deployment soon. And then people will look at it and say, well. We did that before. What's going to be different now? Or it'll end up being the flavor of the month kind of deal. 
Ego-driven leaders will continue to double down on a bad decision even long after they know it's bad. All to protect their legacy slash ego. So also linked up to episode 63, Zombie Projects. They never die. Good consultants, black belts, and leaders must take a step back from their egos or at least recognize if their actions are ego-driven. So this is important. An important important lesson for any consultant, black belt, or leader is to identify which part of how they're acting is ego-driven and then adjust. All right, and this uh, last part, unanswered questions, red herrings, and dead ends. I want to talk now about truth traps and muscle traps and then stop this Chautauqua for today. Truth traps are concerned with data that are apprehended and are within the boxcars of the train. For the most part, these are data properly handled by conventional dualistic logic and scientific method talked about earlier. But there's one trap that isn't, the truth trap of the yes-no logic. Yes and no, this or that, one or zero. On the basis of this elementary two-term discrimination, all human knowledge is built up. The demonstration of this is the computer memory which stores all of its knowledge in the form of binary information. It contains ones and zeros, and that's all. Because we're unaccustomed to it, we don't usually see that there's a third possible logical term, equal to yes and no, which is capable of expanding our own understanding in an unrecognized direction. We don't even have a term for it, so I'll use the Japanese mu. Mu means no thing. Like quality, it points outside the process of dualistic discrimination. Mu simply says, no class, not one, not zero, not yes, not no. It states that the context of the question is such that yes or no answer is an error and should not be given. Unask the question is what it says. Mu becomes appropriate when the context of the question becomes too small for the truth of the answer. When the Zen monk Joshu was asked whether a dog had a Buddha nature, he said, Mu, meaning that if he answered either way, he was answering incorrectly. The Buddha nature cannot be captured by yes or no questions. That Mu exists in the natural world investigated by science is evident. It's just that, as usual, we're trained not to see it by our heritage. For example, it's stated over and over again that computer circuits exhibit only two states, a voltage for 1 and a voltage for 0. That's silly. Any computer electronics technician knows otherwise. Try to find a voltage representing 1 or 0 when the power is off. The circuits are in a mu state. They aren't at 1. They aren't at 0. They're at an intermediate state that has no meaning in terms of 1s or zeros. Readings of the voltmeter will show, in many cases, floating ground characteristics, in which the technician isn't reading characteristics of the computer circuits at all, but the characteristics of the voltmeter itself. What's happened is that the power-off condition is part of the context larger than the context in which the one-zero states are considered universal. The question of one or zero has been unasked. And there are plenty of other computer conditions besides a power-off condition in which Mu answers are found because of larger context than the one-zero universality. The dualistic mind thinks of Mu occurrences in, in nature as a kind of contextual cheating or irrelevance, but Mu is found throughout all scientific investigation, and nature doesn't cheat, and nature's answers are never irrelevant. It's a great mistake, a kind of dishonesty to sweep nature's Mu answers under the carpet. Recognition and valuation of these answers would do a lot to bring logical theory closer to experimental practice. Every laboratory scientist knows that very often his experimental results provide Mu answers to the yes-no questions the experiments were designed for. In these cases, he considers the experiment poorly designed, chides himself for stupidity, 
and at best considers the wasted experiment, which has provided the moo answer to a kind of wheel spinning, which might help prevent mistakes in the design of future yes-no experiments. This low evaluation of the experiment, which provided the moo answer, isn't justified. The moo answer is an important one. It's told the scientist that the context of his question was too small for nature's answer, and that he must enlarge the context of the question. That is a very important answer. His understanding of nature is tremendously improved by it, which was the purpose of the experiment in the first place. A very strong case can be made for the statement that science grows by its moo answers more than by its yes or no answer. Yes or no confirms or denies a hypothesis. Moo says the answer is beyond the hypothesis. Moo is the phenomenon that inspires scientific inquiry in the first place. There's nothing mysterious or esoteric about it. It's just that our culture has warped us to make a low-value judgment of it. In motorcycle maintenance, the Moo answer given by the machine to many diagnostic questions put to it is a major cause of gumption loss. It shouldn't be. When your answer to a test is indeterminate, it means one of two things. That your test procedures aren't doing what you think they are, or that your understanding of the context of the question need to be enlarged. Check your tests and restudy the question. Don't throw away those Moo answers. They're every bit as vital as the yes or no answers. They're more vital. They're the ones you grow on. So, consider, you know, that was a long passage, but what is it talking about? It's talking about, it's talking about the, uh, those times where you feel like you've hit a dead end. You have gone through this, you've gone through the work, and you haven't gotten an answer. So, what if you do get a moo? It's neither yes or no. Um, keep moving forward and uh, keep following up on those unanswered questions. Expand your scope and ask again. Check the data. Check the data. Check the data. Red herrings exist, and that is, you know, the red herring is data that is essentially false, but uh, appears real. Uh, it is something that would su- uh, that supports one conclusion, but has maybe other data that uh, says differently. So, so a lot of these are assumptions and anecdotal data, or just people's faulty recall. And the is is not helps identify data that uh, conflicts with other data. Check your measurement system. When you cannot measure the effects you're looking at, perhaps it is the measurement itself that is flawed, much like the moo state of checking a computer system. If it's in a power-off position and you're just measuring what's going on with the voltmeter uh, and you're still getting a voltage, it's not the computer that's doing the volt, uh, generating the voltage. It is actually the voltmeter itself. That is the moo condition. We have many episodes on measurement system analysis, uh, starting at episode 49, 50, 53, 55, 56, 57, 58, and 59, all about measurement, different measurement system analysis approaches. So getting to this, a little bit of a story. So an example, I was measuring in the laboratory, chemical concentration, doing a study on the gauge. It was learned that the variation in the process is almost completely explained by the variation in the instrument itself, meaning it was the instrument that was causing all the variation. We are actually failing product falsely because the instrument did not have the precision we needed uh, in, in the ranges that we were looking at. It went undiagnosed, which if we didn't do our if we didn't do our uh, study, the uh, mu the mu is really just complete noise. It is just random variation, static. So we tested it further, it was learned that the variation in the readings could be correlated to temperature swings in the laboratory, which means that the machine, in essence, wasn't really measuring the concentration of the chemistry. It was measuring the temperature of the room. Think about that. 
we could put a standard concentration in there and get a different reading based on what the temperature of the room was. So really, it was measuring the temperature of the room. Also going back on the uh, on the Moo, check your alpha risk. Sometimes Moo can look like both rejecting and accepting the null hypothesis, depending on if the alternate hypothesis you choose is one-tailed or two-tailed. This is a little bit out there, and we haven't covered any of it yet, but there is a condition where you can both fail to reject the null and reject the null, depending on how you choose your alternate hypothesis, and it's just on how close um, your alpha risk is uh, in the tails of of these um, uh, test distributions. Anyway, more on that. If you already know a lot about that, you get it. If you don't know a lot about that, then stay tuned. All right, quick recap. Kaizen and the art of everything. Ask the right questions. Test your hypotheses. Take the advantage by being a novice. Part ways with your ego and follow up on unanswered questions. Expand the scope and ask again. Thanks for listening to episode 195 of the eSuccess Methods podcast. Don't forget to click like or dislike for this episode in the show notes. Tap click done. If you have a question, comment, or advice, leave a note in the comments section or contact us directly. Feel free to email me, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at esuccess-methods.com or on our website. We reply to all messages. If you heard something you like, share us with a friend or leave a review. Didn't like what you heard? Join our LinkedIn group. Tell us why. Don't forget you can find notes and graphics for all shows and more at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. If you're not climbing up, you're falling down.